Before we start this week's episode, a few quick housekeeping notes from Sam and I. The first is that Sam's microphone wasn't working properly, so he recorded this episode using his laptop's built-in mic, which means he's going to sound a little different, although surprisingly not that bad. The second is that we're going to be taking the month of December off, and we'll be back in the new year with plenty of new content. And now, on to the episode. You're listening to the Entmoot Podcast, the podcast about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and how they intersect with political philosophy. This is episode 8, Hard Right Hobbits, in which co-hosts Kenny and Sam discuss Tolkien's influence on right-wing and neo-fascist movements across the world, particularly in Italy and Silicon Valley. Welcome, listeners, to episode eight of the Antmoot Podcast. I'm here, as always, with my great friend and co-host, Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you? I'm doing, I'm doing incredibly. I'm stoked to be home for Thanksgiving, excited for my soy boy uh, vegetarian Thanksgiving food. Un- unusually, Sam and I are recording this uh, only a few days before it's going to release, so we're recording this uh, on the week of Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, in the past, we've recorded like weeks and weeks ahead of time so that that gives us lots of lead time both of us are busy um but this one just so happened that we are recording it very close to the day it's releasing so that means that you know where when they come up we can talk about uh current events if we need to such as sam a few weeks ago here in the u.s there were some pretty exciting midterm elections yes there were extremely exciting midterm elections i think the most important thing is that alan fung lost um (laughs) And, and yeah, and Rhode, Rhode Island too remains in Democratic hands. Rhode Island too remains in Democratic hands. And then uh, Matt Cartwright won. I was stoked on that. Uh, Hamilton graduate Hamilton Matt Cartwright. Alum, Matt Cartwright. One of uh, rep, one of only four Democratic, or excuse me, six Democratic incumbents to be running in districts that Trump won in 2020, and one of only four who won their races. Yeah, so some good elections, some not so good elections. I don't know if anyone's been paying attention to what happened in Malaysia. Not great. S- Sam is much more of the uh, is of the the foreign uh, elections expert than than I am. So I've just been riding pretty high after some of these some of these elections here here in the U.S. Uh, historic overperformance for the the president's party in a midterm election. Uh, Sam, how are things overseas? Elections overseas. So as many of you know, because it actually did get quite a lot of. Uh, American media attention. Uh, just a few months ago, in the Italian elections, a right-wing coalition won, which is actually sort of the standard course for Italy, even though the last few years it was ruled by a sort of weird cross-ideological populist coalition with the main party being a center-left one. For the last 70 years, Italy has overwhelmingly been controlled by right-wing uh, coalitions. As will come up in the episode, oftentimes these coalitions include far-right or neo-fascist parties within them as junior partners, but for the first time ever, uh, you know, since Mussolini, the primary um, governing party, the party with a plurality of seats in the Italian parliament, uh, is a neo-fascist party. They, I don't think, would necessarily call themselves that. Some members of it would, but that's what it is. It's called um, the Brothers of Italy, or... Uh, Kenny, you might be able to pronounce this better due to your heritage, but Fratelli, Fratelli di Italia. I'll I'll do my best. My so my uh, my grandmother is is uh, from Italy, 
so I, you know, I, ha- I have a little bit. Of, okay, so I think I believe it's something like Fratelli d'Italia. Something like that. <laughs> Standards of Italian-Americans with a grandparent who was actually born there. You're basically fresh off the boat. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fresh off the boat. Um, but so uh, uh, Fratelli di... Uh, you might be asking yourself, what does this have to do with Tolkien? I'm here to listen to Tolkien and politics, not Italian <laughs> politics. Well, funny you asked, dear listener. Um, there's also <laughs> been a lot of media attention about the fact that Giorgio Maloney, the new uh, Italian prime minister from the Brothers of Italy, is a massive Tolkien fan, like uh, you, our dear listeners, as well as me and Kenny. She loves Tolkien. She's always talking about The Hobbit. Um, People find this so interesting and strange that there have been, like, New York Times articles written about it. And we need to emphasize, and this will become clear through the episode, this isn't, like, some weird fun fact that she's into Tolkien. She's, like, really into Tolkien. And the entire Italian fascist movement has been for the last 50 years. Which is very interesting because even though a lot of our show goes over, you know, Tolkien's links to conservatism, overwhelmingly the big Tolkien fans in politics, you know, you have some center-right Catholics. But it tends to be like hippies, people on the left, a lot of the environmental movement. Um, And in Italy, it's been so right-coded for so long that being a a Tolkien fan is really sort of seen as an explicitly right-wing thing. And this episode is sort of going to trace that, and then we're going to connect it with the American sort of Silicon Valley far rights uh, obsession with uh, Tolkien and how they're connected. Yes, there was a a big article in the New York Times published on September 21st, 2022. It's by Jason Horowitz, and it's called Hobbits and the Hard Right, How Fantasy Inspires Italy's Potential New Leader. And uh, this was this big profile that was getting uh, lots of lots of attention uh, on Twitter. I remember, I think, like, Jamel Bowie was tweeting about it, another New York Times columnist, uh, with just, you know, sort of opinions on... Clearly, if Tolkien's work resonates so much with, like, this entire sort of hard-right movement in Italy, but not only just in Italy, it's... I think that... Certainly, it's a trend, like Sam mentioned, in, in, in the U.S., I don't know that our sort of hard right, like, neo-Nazi types, I don't think it's really huge, like, with, with, with that sort of person, but it certainly is with, like, what we might consider sort of the new captains of industry, which is the sort of, you know, the tech lords on the West Coast. They all love Tolkien, including Elon and, and Bezos. Peter Thiel's a huge fan, and his little freak crony Curtis Yarvin, who I would like to see publicly wedged, um, <laughs> is, is, I don't know if he's explicitly a Tolkien fan. I think he is. He's really into fantasy. And one thing that's going to come up in this episode is these people are really into Tolkien. They're also really into fantasy more broadly and sort of nerd culture. I mean, Maloney even named important political things. This is in the New York Times episode after like anime characters and and this is a sort of trend that I mean maybe you could have seen coming with like all the post Gamergate stuff, but I definitely don't think has gotten uh, that. I, I definitely think this is more of a thing than people maybe realize. Yeah, Sam, because of the anime thing, uh, you would have voted for her, right? Oh, for sure, for sure, no doubt. <laughs> uh, I've not actually uh, seen the show that she referenced, but yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I'll say one more one more quick thing before we really get into it is that uh, I yesterday I had my flu shot. 
uh, a COVID booster and I had blood work done. So I've just been, I've just been truly just knocked out today. Uh, so, you know, which is convenient because this is closer to Sam's area of expertise too. So I think he's going to be in the, in the driver's seat for this. Uh, I'd also like to very quickly mention, uh, Peter Thiel, who is now, uh, one for two with his, uh, groomed Senate candidates. Yeah. Rest in shit, Blake Masters. I saw a tweet to the effect of, uh, wonder if Peter Thiel is going to take him back to the lab, euthanize him and make another model, which is probably what's going to happen. Um, yeah, he's going to be recalled. He's going to be recalled. Oh, my God. It was so satisfying to see him get utterly smashed. I, I was The thing I was most invested in with this election was specifically Blake Masters losing, so I'm really stoked on that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, with that out of the way, I think the best place to start with this conversation is going over a brief overview of Georgia Maloney, who she is, the movement she comes from, um, and sort of broader Italian neo-fascist stuff. So Maloney is fairly young for a head of state. She's 45. You know, this would be inconceivable in the United States to have a prime minister or president in the U.S. who's that young. It's a little less strange in Europe, but, you know, still quite young. I think that's about how old Obama was. No, I, don't, I think he was like 50. Nah, Cap. I think, I'm saying it right now. He was 45. So he's 61 now. He was totally 45. No, he was 47. He was 47. Get old, liberal! <laughs> I was closer than you. <laughs> yeah, you were. You were closer. You were closer. Also, I think JFK was like 44, but that's a long time he ago. Was. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so she was born in Rome. She grew up in a, um, you know, her father was uh, left the family and was later convicted for drug trafficking, uh, which I, I do think her father leaving is actually relevant to her and this broad, broader story because the gender politics get pretty interesting pretty fast. But when she was 15, she joined the youth front of the Italian social movement, MIS, or MSI, excuse me, which was the neo-fascist party in Italy for many decades. Ended up dissolving in 1995 due to some, you know, parliamentary political stuff. Then in 1998, when she would have been, uh, you know, 21 years old, she was elected as a counselor of the province of Rome, which is remarkably young. And then in 2006, she was left to the Chamber of Deputies um, as a member of a sort of big center-right to – I'll say broadly right-wing coalition. Then in 2008, she was appointed the uh, an actual position in Berlusconi's cabinet. This is very relevant. Even though she's from a fringe far-right party, uh, compared to other European countries like let's say Germany or Italy – or England, the far right has had much more of a legitimized presence for a long time. Uh, Berlusconi courted them. Berlusconi included people like Maloney in his government. He was prime minister for like a million years. Um, and she did not suddenly pivot to being super right wing. Again, her career began in uh, an explicitly neo-fascist party. She has continued to advocate for these sort of neo-fascist political positions her entire career. It's also worth mentioning as we sort of segue into the broader history of Italian neo-fascism, that the Italian neo-fascist movement does try to distinguish itself from Mussolini uh, and his movement in, in pretty, you know, despicable but also interesting ways. And and when I first sort of came across this, I was listening to, you know, I listened to a Know Your Enemy episode, great podcast, where they interviewed David Broder, I believe is his name, who's the Jacobin correspondent in Europe. And he was talking about how 
the Italian fascist movement uh, in the 70s, 60s, 80s tried to distance itself from Mussolini. And when you do more research, it becomes interesting. They view Mussolini not only as a failure, but also as, you know, they put it spiritually bankrupt. There is a great article in the uh, Fair Observer, which we're going to be setting a lot for this, which discusses this. A lot of the philosophers and political leaders who were really into Tolkien, who sort of brought Tolkien into the Italian far-right movement, cited a lack of sort of spirituality and uh, principles as being the problem with Mussolini's movement. In the Fair Observer article, it discusses how the uh, Italy's new right, which emerges in the 70s, was overwhelmingly young. And, and I think it's worth emphasizing to a sort of American audience that we think of young people as being left-wing, which today they are. Historically, even in the United States, but especially in Europe, youth movements have not strictly been leftist. The Italian neo-fascist movement in the late 20th century was overwhelmingly led by young people who tried to distance themselves from their elders. The interesting sort of contradiction you arrive, arrive at from that, though, is that if you're fascist, you're trying to return to a sort of older state of being. You're anti-modern. If you're going against your elders, you have to be pulling to something much older and something that they found really attractive in Tolkien, fairy tales broadly, but especially Tolkien, is this idea that they're pulling from a sort of complete rejection of modernity, a sort of fantastical world, I think a world that can't exist. I think this is relevant. In many ways, it's a sort of utopian project. It's a dark utopian project. Their utopia is not a good one. But they're sort of also, and again, the articles don't explicitly state this, but I think they're also sort of rejecting the Italian fascist movement's uh, obsession with, with modernism. If you think about the futurists in Italy, the futurist writers and industrialists were overwhelmingly um, fascist. Compared to Germany, there was much more of an emphasis on stuff like modern art. The new Italian fascist movement, which has been around for like 50 years, really rejected this. Um, and this obsession with Tolkien stem, you know, sort of came about somewhat broadly. But, you know, there were a few concrete things that happened. One of them, the, uh, the philosopher Elmira Zola wrote, who was, you know, far right, wrote the first introduction to Lord of the Rings that was published in Italy, which began uh, the Italian association of Tolkien with the far right. There was another philosopher, Julius Avola, who uh, this Fair Observer article describes as a guru-like figure for the radical youth. He was also really into Tolkien. He criticized nostalgia, and he sort of wanted a return to, as he put it, pagan uh, ideas. Again, I think compared to other far-right movements, Italian neo-fascism was really, it was and still is really interested in sort of the mythical, the esoteric. Obviously, this has always been there. The Nazis were super into myth-making, but the Italian neo-fascist movement goes into this in a sort of pop culture way. So in the late 70s, <clears throat> the youth wing of the Italian MSI movement started organizing hobbit parties, hobbit camps, which were these giant summer camps for the uh, right-wing youth that would be explicitly structured around Lord of the Rings. People would dress up like Lord of the Rings characters. There would be alternative – there would be fascist alt-rock bands 
which would play music based on Lord of the Rings storylines. Including the uh, the classic band Compagnia dell'Anello, which is literally Fellowship of the Ring, which is a sick band name. It is a sick band name. And again, sort of the idea of hippie, far-right Lord of the Rings rock is so strange, I think, to me. But this was and is a very real thing. And I think uh, another <clears throat> key part of this is that they were explicitly trying to court the left. So by talking about Tolkien, by talking about issues such as ecology and environmentalism, they were trying to get over disaffected leftist youth over to their side because the Italian neo-fascist movement viewed its enemies not only as the left, this liberal culture surrounding them, which didn't really exist. Italy has been pretty right-wing, although there was left-wing violence during this time period. There was more right-wing violence. Um, the They also viewed the sort of old right-wing as their enemy that was sort of oppressing them, that they had to shake off the shackles of. And Maloney emerges from this milieu. Uh, uh, you know, the, the peak of this, of these Hobbit camps, was in the 70s and 80s, but she sort of comes from all of this. She, although I think... Aspects of this may have faded in the 90s, in the early 2000s. As Maloney <clears throat> has built power over the last few years, I guess the last like 14 years, she's really pushed this to the forefront. In 2008 for a magazine cover, she posed next to a Gandalf statue. She's named a lot of things as Lord of the Rings characters, as I mentioned earlier, anime characters. And, and, and although this emerged somewhat organically, this is all a strategy of framing uh, sort of Italian neo-fascist politics around fantasy. I think the sort of fantastical element also where it gets really interesting is Maloney's economic policy. So Maloney is a right-wing neo-fascist populist. Her big thing, her big policy platforms are getting the migrants out of Italy, um, getting gender ideology out of Italy, she's extremely anti-LGBTQ. She's also really opposed to international financiers and banks. Uh, I, I wonder who that is talking about. <laughs> yeah, I wonder who that's talking about. Also, <laughs> being neo-fascist, there's a lot of Nazi sympathizers there. Like, again, it's, it's, it's not too hard to see what that's coded as, especially because her actual economic program is fairly right-wing. Since they've been in government, the big thing that Maloney's party and this new right-wing coalition has done is get rid of the biggest or one of the biggest Italian welfare programs. So the Italian welfare program, which uh, pays for over a million people, her government is gutting. So this is not some like red-brown synthesis that's economically left-wing and socially right-wing. It is still economically right-wing. They're still gutting welfare. They're still opposed to organized labor. Um, you could say that all the opposition to the financiers and the bankers is just anti-Semitism. That's certainly part of it. I think a lot of it also, and, and this is, uh, again, pulling from, from David Broder's work, is a sort of weird emphasis on localist capitalism, the idea that a nation should be able to control its own destiny free from international monetary forces or other countries or the European Union. And this is a complete misrepresentation of Tolkien's work. But as me and Kenny have talked about in previous episodes, there is this real localist focus in Lord of the Rings. You know, absolutely. The Shire does have this localist economy. So there is something there. They're getting it wrong. 
but they are getting at something. It's not completely pulled out of thin air. Yeah, I agreed with everything. Uh, I do want to make a couple points that are uh, going to be brief. The first is you mentioned uh, Julius uh, Evola, who is uh, like I think he's considered sort of one of the one of the biggest like philosophers and writers of fascism and of, of Italian fascism. Uh, and you mentioned that he was an admirer of of Tolkien. Uh, I want to also make the point, as we are often doing, Tolkien did not live very long ago, and actually he and Julius Evola were almost exact contemporaries. Uh, they were born, like, five years, like, apart from each other, and they died a year apart from each other. So... They were alive at for almost all of the exact same time, but I am sure that Tolkien would have found him repugnant. Oh yeah, he would. He would have also found him repugnant because, and this is the really weird thing about all of this. Even though they're super anti-LGBTQ, they're super traditionalist, they're fascist. They're not super Christian. Evola explicitly wanted to insert, as he put it, pagan spirituality and also Buddhist and Taoist. Um, principles into Italian fascism. He had a contract with an anti-Christian. So this is not a dude who Tolkien would get along with. I was going to mention that because in in the US, like the idea of the hard right being associated uh, sort of inextricably with evangelical Christianity, that's just kind of something that is is a baked in assumption. Of course, that's also not, uh, that has really only been the case for maybe 50 years, maybe a little more. Um, but still it is, it is very strange in the modern context to sort of uh, imagine that it's like, yes, this hard right sort of return to tradition, uh, movement that is like, none of the basis of it is in sort of Catholic or Christian tradition. Yeah. Like Maloney does make a big deal of being Christian and makes a lot of overtures to Christianity, but it doesn't feel like much of the platform is explicitly pulled from Christian thinking. And this is not, you know, just to say like, oh, they're wrong. This is not actually Christian. Like, you know, awful American evangelicals who I despise and I think are wrong about everything are in a weird, twisted way in their own minds sincerely drawing their political ideology from Christianity. It seems like this is much less so the case with Maloney's movement. Um, Again, a lot of the roots of it, even something like, Um, At these Hobbit camps, they eventually began the youth fascist movement, used the Celtic cross as its symbol, a distinctively pagan, um, a a pagan version of it. Again, it's it's sort of Christian, but they were trying, they they really admired the pre-Christian mythological pagan aspects of Tolkien's work. which, you know, in certain ways is also the case for the Nazis admiring myth and folklore. I don't know. Something about it is just – it's such a weird mishmash of political ideology. And again, this is why I think it's so interesting that they're obsessed with Tolkien. It's so fantastical. It's so disconnected from reality. They're positioning themselves as these right-wing populists while pursuing like an aggressive Reagan-esque cuts for welfare. You also might get a, a factor of the – of Maloney being, you know, leaning into the, the, the Christian identity thing as, as actually being less about what that signals about, like, what she believes and more so of, like, tying Italy to the sort of, you know, the great Catholic lineage as opposed to, like, 
whatever migrants she is, you know, uh, using as the as the enemies in 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 her political rhetoric. Right. It's kind of I think it I think it's less about maybe this is also just uh, an assumption that I'm making, but I think it, it might be less about like Christian or Catholic ideology at all. And and more so tying that with like an intrinsically Italian identity. Yeah, I think that's right on the money there. And this sort of thing is going on in the U.S., you, you know, with a lot of this super hardcore anti-LGBTQ stuff becoming more disconnected from um, sort of Christian or even, I should say like weird right-wing evangelical messages and more just sort of self-sustaining on its own. So this certainly is not unique to Italy, but it is strange in, the, in, in its contours in Italy. Sam, I am um – I'm wondering uh, another important question I wanted to ask you. When she was a minister in Berlusconi's uh, government, do you think that she ever attended one of the Bunga Bunga parties? I don't even. Get- you don't know? Yes. Okay. I'm glad you don't know about this because now I can explain it. So I'm gonna read from the uh, I'm gonna read from the Wikipedia page on this. The these uh, Bunga Bunga parties that Berlusconi held uh, in in uh, in in the 2000s. Uh, it would in- involve quote. A sort of underwater orgy where nude young women prostitutes allegedly encircled the nude host and or his friends in his swimming pool. Imagine this is Berlusconi. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, this is also just a, this is also just a joke because I wanted to talk about the Bunga Bunga parties. But um, this was a big scandal in, uh, in Italy in like 2000. 10 or 11. And, you know, I think that if you're in, you know, one of those countries, like Italy or France or one of those countries, if you have a sex scandal, it's got to be crazy. Yeah, no. The Also, like, Berlusconi, and I think you can sort of get at this with the fact that he had Maloney in his government in a coalition with far-right people. Fucking weird guy. Like... I, oh my god, he, he's, a, he's a truly bizarre person. And he was, I mean, how long was he pr- prime minister? I guess net total, it was nine years. But it was nine years... Over the course of 21 years, going in and out of power. Um, he's also ancient. He's, yeah, he's 86. Whole, I didn't know he was 86. He's one of those people who just is becoming more and more plastic. Oh, like, yeah. Where w- when you look at them, like, yeah, this picture of him in 2018, like, he doesn't look 86, but he doesn't really look human either. He's, I mean, he and he's like, I mean, he was in prison for tax fraud. He has the sex scandals with underage prostitutes. He's also, like, fabulously wealthy businessman who entered politics. Yeah, Italian politics, very strange in general. And it's been more right-wing tinged than Spanish or French or German politics for a long time. Um, The center-left, I mean, people make a lot of fuss about all of these Italian communists who have been around forever. The Italian center-left, I mean, I guess they held power the last few years technically, but they really have been in more of, like, held very little power for basically ever. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you compare them to, like, the Labor Party has held very little power over the last 60. But I feel like even then, the influence of the Labor Party has been stronger throughout British society. The interest, the, and, and then also, the Italian right is way further right and has been basically forever than the Tories are. Like not, it's not even close. No, it's not even close. And and then you compare it to like France or Spain or Germany where, you know, pretty, I mean, I know Germany, it's, it was a while without an SPD government, but pretty routinely you have center left governments in there. And, and oftentimes the sort of center right governments are like 
not that far off from a Tony Blair or a Bill Clinton. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Merkel sucked in a lot of ways, and she destroyed the Greek economy, and her reign of austerity was bad. She also was not, and she was, and she is a conservative, she was not right-wing in the way that I think most of us today think of being right-wing. Yeah, like, I mean, there's a reason that her and Trump hate each other. Yes. I mean, I think most American liberals who are vaguely aware of international politics think of her as a liberal. Because her and Obama were like, oh, we're best friends. You know, I think that that's sort of the, the assumption. And that's because, like, Obama is certainly to Merkel's left, but, like, you know, the gulf between them is not gigantic. Yeah, it's certainly different. But I think it's interesting that right around the time this was getting a lot of media attention a month and a half ago, there was also a lot of discourse, and there has been for a few years, about how obsessed with Tolkien Silicon Valley is. And we alluded to this earlier. Peter Thiel is constantly naming companies and projects after Tolkien concepts. The most on the news one is Palantir, which is his massive mass surveillance company, which contracts with the government to violate our rights on a daily basis and spy on people. Sam, tell us who, who Peter Thiel is like for any for someone who doesn't know. Okay, so Peter Thiel is an American captain of industry. He's a super rich guy. He co-founded PayPal um, with a number of people, including Elon Musk, who is a good pal yeah. of his. He's founded a lot And a of, really good guy. And a really a great guy. He also... Um, and he was the one who, f- who sold uh, PayPal to eBay, one of those guys involved in that, and he made a ton of money. He founded a giant hedge fund, founded Palantir. He has been involved in right-wing politics for as long as he's done everything, anything. Back when he was at Stanford, he wrote for their um, – actually, I think he founded their on-campus student-run right-wing journal, which is quite influential. And he wrote him – and him and his pal – I forget the name of the other guy who was there – wrote a lot of articles about – uh, a number of culture war things, you know, how much they hated liberals, how much they hated gay people, which is funny because, as a lot of you probably know, Peter Thiel is gay. Um, he's both far right and gay. Um, he was truly outed as a um, gay guy by Hawker, which is terror Gawker, excuse me. No matter who you are, you shouldn't be outed against your consent. He then um sued gawker for a bazillion dollars with hulk hogan who had his sex tape leaked by gawker i believe and bankrupt yes and a very normal sex tape too (laughs) where hulk hogan is uh just non-stop saying the n-word yes oh my god um wikipedia describes teal as a conservative libertarian that is a load of horseshit peter teal is a freak Peter Thiel has articles going back like over 10 years about how America needs to be a dictatorship with what he terms the CEO of America. He has been on the record opposing the right of women to vote. He uh, was a huge financier of Donald Trump. He's, I think, is still the biggest individual donor to the Republican Party. He spoke at the 2016 RNC. He also has been trying to use his leverage to increase his sort of new right influence through the Republican Party. Uh, with his sort of pawns, including J.D. Vance um, and Blake Masters, who is, as we've talked about, a freak. Uh, Peter Thiel is explicitly opposed to democracy. He also, and this is why it's interesting that he's also into Tolkien, is very much a modernist. He's super far right. Um, I don't think because of any return to tradition, but he sees liberalism and the left and all of these Um, And democracy, democracy primarily is obstacles to progress, which should be controlled and led by the geniuses such as himself, 
who, you know, create the great inventions like PayPal and mass surveillance technology, which uh, will allow the human race to prosper. Um, and yeah, he names his companies after Tolkien Concepts. Palantir, this mass surveillance firm, is named after the Palantiri, which we all remember from Lord of the Rings. And our mass surveillance devices. <laughs> and our mass surveillance devices that are used to corrupt people. Uh, quite and are also portrayed quite explicitly as bad. Yeah, this is the thing about Peter Thiel is like he almost leans into this like dark villain reputation, and there's all these like freak VC dudes on uh, Twitter who worship him, um, which isn't necessarily shocking. He also, you know, is just really influential in Silicon Valley. His books with you know Blake Masters on how to do startups are huge. Um, he's sort of revered, and. He's not alone. A, a lot of these dudes, uh, like Bezos, who it's worth mentioning is an evil rich dude, but I do not think is by any means far right in the way that uh, Teal no. is. No, he's not. He's he's right wing because he didn't want to pay taxes. He's not like some cartoonish fascist. He's just sort of self-motivated. Um, but like a lot of the Silicon Valley dudes, especially a lot of the far right ones, are really into Tolkien. Again, uh, Curtis Yarvin had an article a few months ago talking about himself as being a dark elf um, at war with the orcs. Tell us who Curtis Yarvin is. I know you mentioned him, but... <laughs> you described him as a blogger? That's probably the... Uh... When you Google him, it says American blogger. That's so funny. Yeah, he's known for find, founding the neo-reactionary movement NRX, also termed the Dark Enlightenment. Again, this shit is so lame. These dudes are all, like, fucking nerds. And I know we're saying this on a Lord of the Rings podcast, <laughs> but these guys are, like, nerds, nerds. Like... They are wedgieable. Yeah, and we're—I mean—and we're also very cool and awesome. Yeah, we're cool and sick. Yarvin is bizarre. I think he—I don't think he's actually been super successful as a technologist. He founded a decentralized operating system called Urbit, which you may have heard of in the news because the CEO of Alameda Capital, who was in Sam Bateman Freed, CEO of FTX's Polycule, um, uh which the giant crypto firm was, which just went under this week running a Ponzi scheme, this uh, CEO of Almeida Research, she was um, uh, used uh, the Urbit platform to talk about her theories of race science and polyamory. Um, so he's really influential among the worst people in the world. I also think it's worth mentioning, yeah, Steve Bannon admires him, his concept of, an American CEO. Uh, he's just popular with really awful people who are really wealthy. Now, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Steve Bannon. He's a he's a, actually a direct link between the Italian fascists and, or neo-fascists and some of the, you know, obviously American right-wing uh, movements. And uh, that's because Steve Bannon is kind of like kind of like Forrest Gump, except he's just meeting all of the worst possible people in the world and is just always there. Um, uh, he's, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of the Thanos, I am inevitable. And um, so I found, I found an article from The Week in 2017 where uh, Steve Bannon is, he was giving a speech in Tokyo in 2017 uh Actually, uh, the speech was lauding the prime minister, Shinzo Abe, who, as we know, was assassinated over uh, over the summer. 
Um, also a right wing freak. Also a also a right winger and a penchant for denying uh, Japanese war crimes during World War II and making fun of uh, Korean rape victims. That's right. That's right. So with that in mind, Bannon was lauding uh, Shinzo Abe for being quote Trump before Trump, and uh, Bannon uh, Bannon also implicitly likened the quote elites to orcs by claiming that the quote hobbits and quote deplorables a little. Hillary Clinton reference to 2016, that elected Trump will never allow him to be ousted. So Bannon is doing exactly what Maloney does, and that's because Bannon is both really smart and also is hooked into all of these various discourses of, like, the, you know, the connection that is so salient for a lot of people, again, in particular, like these Silicon Valley types who probably give lots of money, in fact, do give lots of money to the Republicans, like Peter Thiel, and uh, fascist or neo-fascist movements abroad that, you know, hobbits are kind of coded as being like the, you know, almost like a silent majority type. Yes. And and then connecting all the stuff back around to Tolkien, Thiel and Yarvin are both explicitly anti-democratic. As we've discussed, so was Tolkien. I think that's one thing they see in him is a sort of opposition to democracy. Obviously, this completely falls apart when you think about how Tolkien was also opposed to industrial capitalism. And fascism. And fascism. I also think another explanation for all of this is that these people are all weird nerds. Yeah, yeah, that's... And so, you know, and I think, again, that's another thing that is almost... uh, is, is, is foreign to the, you know, the American... Uh, political consciousness, which is that oftentimes the Democrats are seen as nerds and the Republicans are sort of the the macho cowboy types. And like you, I I think that with that, you get this idea that's like masculinity and like machismo are very important to the American right, I think, writ large, like just your average dude who likes Republicans. It's often going to be like, well, you know, the, the Democrats are a bunch of wimps, basically, right? And I think that, you know, of course, there's always sort of an element of, like, the, you know, people tend to like, you know, strong leaders and stuff. But, like, you do get a sense of, like, a lot of overseas, a lot of these sort of right-wing movements are way more like, you know, they come out of the universities and stuff, which is just not as much the case in America. There is still that sort of intellectual right-wing tradition. But, like, for all intents and purposes, like, it doesn't matter that much. It matter. There are way, way less sort of, like, right-wing serious intellectuals. And I, I say right-wing, I don't mean like, or, I, you know, I don't mean like, uh, uh, like a, even like a Ross Duthat or, you know, one of those guys who are conservatives, but they're not, like, the type of right-wing that we're talking about. There isn't that much of that in the U.S. You have, like, the Claremont Institute, I guess. But, like, that's not nearly as big as, like, one of these, like, major political parties in Italy, for example, which is all kind of, like, Claremont types. Yeah. I Oh, and also, of oh, uh, by the way, speaking of Steve Bannon, in the 1990s, this is just a thing we forgot to mention, in the 90s, Maloney started her own political festival called Atrehu, which, you guessed it, Steve Bannon was the guest of honor at in 2018. So he he really is the fascist Forrest Gump. He yeah, he truly is. I mean I mean, it's him and then Orban probably as far as like just being a, being with everyone. Yeah, they 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 get around. I'd like to just go a little bit deeper on the the Silicon Valley thing because I I do think that it actually the obsession with Tolkien. I think it's I think it tells a, us a few like things about about these guys and of course they they are guys. 
Yes. Um, and uh, those, uh, that's, first of all, I think that some of it is related, honestly, to like the ages of some of these guys, that a lot of them were like in their 20s when the movies came out in the early 2000s. Uh, and of course, all, 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 most of them read the books as kids as well, but like, and so they were important to them already, I think. But like, I just think that, you know, it's probably not a coincidence that like they came of age around the time that Lord of the Rings was entering into the popular consciousness, uh, way more than it ever had before. Um, but I think that the, the one thing that I always get at that, that always kind of strikes me is that, you know, the big sort of theme of, of the Lord of the Rings in terms of, um, uh, like character traits, I guess, is that the hobbits are always like the little guy. And that's like the great story is that these little insignificant guys, you know, can can save can save the world from, you know, the greatest evil imaginable uh, just by having courage and bravery and by, you know, uh, persevering and stuff. It's, you know, it's a it's a sort of a very old fashioned type of story where it's like, you know, the little guy is turns out to be the most important after all. I think that that impulse to see yourself like as the little guy who's always, you know, always swimming upstream and is always pushing against the tide. Uh, I think that that is often very characteristic of right wing movements in particular. Yeah, they're so aggrieved. They are so aggrieved. Yeah, everything is like you know, we're the victims, we're being victimized, everything's against us. And like you mentioned, Sam, it's, you see that with the Italian, the Italian right, where it's like, they've basically, you know, at different sort of uh, parts of the political spectrum on the right, they've held power in Italy, like, pretty consistently, there've been some center left governments. And I think, you know, right after, like, World War Two, there were, I think, some communist governments, but like, still, it's been, it's been, you know, pretty solidly, uh, center right to right wing in Italy for you know quite a while, uh, but y- you certainly see it in the U.S. Trump's entire movement is is on is based on uh, being aggrieved. I think some of that, of course, is related to like Trump's unique sort of h- his own pathologies that are unique to him, uh, and uh, 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 the fact that he constantly sees like himself as the victim more so than like his movement or whatever. Uh, because the movement is totally constructed around himself and his own identity. But, um, you know, that's been a thing on, like, Fox News and right-wing media in the U.S. for a long time, that, uh, you know, that the left or the financiers, you know, more recently, and we know, of course, who, who that means, are, you know, they're trying to, you should be you should be furious because they're, you know, they're trying to make your kids trans with all these drag queens, or they're, you know, they're taking your money and they're uh, injecting uh, your kids adrenochrome, yes. right? It, it is all grievance all the time, and it's, I'm always the little guy, and I'm, I, I always have these massive forces that are pushing against me, and I'm, I need to, you know, use my perseverance and I, because I am the righteous one, so I need to overcome the, the the tall odds. So the way that I think that that pathology fits into the Silicon Valley types is that they really were the little guys in like the '90s, and the, you know, I mean, you can even go back to like you know, like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak founding Apple in the '70s, right? Like that, genuinely, they were running that out of, out of one of their garages. You know, like that really was sort of like a started from scratch and. Steve Wozniak's a super smart guy and Steve Jobs is really charismatic, right? You do get like this, you know, classic like 
not rags to riches because they were, you know, like middle class. But it's also worth noting. It's also worth noting. I think that Steve Wozniak is by all accounts a pretty cool dude. And Steve Jobs, weird, bad in a lot of ways, was not into any of this weird right wing shit. He was like sort of a hippie. He was into like weird. I didn't he say was weird. totally a hippie. He was a hippie. And, and the whole context of Silicon Valley, from my impression during the 90s, was all this hippie stuff. I mean, Google's whole, whole what was their motto? Like, uh, don't be evil. It seems like that is all completely evaporated. You're right. It's exactly. It's they. There was. It's all sort of this like almost utopian vision, which also, of course, does not fit with with Tolkien at all. But um, the I, I I think though that the that idea of like we're the little guys, we have the odds against us. You know, I think that that kind of stuck with like that kind of stuck in the culture of big tech. So I think, though, that even though, of course, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos or Peter Thiel, you know, in I don't think that there is any possible definition of the word underdog that could describe them like the the obsession of viewing oneself as the little guy is something that uh, a lot of right wing movements and Silicon Valley types, uh, whether sort of conservative or right wing or not. Uh, and I guess, you know, it is worth, it's also worth saying, I think that I don't think any of the Silicon Valley types are really conservative. I think that a lot of them are right wing. Yes, I agree with that. That's a great way of putting it. You know, I think that conservatism, uh, implies, you know, that you are, uh, that you are yearning for, for the past uh, in some way, or that you, that you are, you know, what is the Bill Buckley thing? Standing athwart history, yelling stop or something, you know, yes. that's kind of what, that's kind of what conservatism implies. Right. And if by definition, the Peter Thiel types are, they're futurists, right? They, they, they are they're They want to use, uh, the powers, you know, of tech and of all this stuff to, to reach, uh, a, you know, a future that they might view as a utopia. I think it's probably more of a dystopia that, uh, they, that, you know, is, uh, is consonant with with their views, right? And that that's it's very it's actually it's actually quite anti-conservative because it's a lot of you know you're you want to bring about a lot of change uh, in the same way that like the on the you know the onset of capitalism way back in the day was uh, it was not conservative in the way that sort of we use it today because it's you know revolutionary. Um, I think though that um, that impulse of seeing oneself as as the little guy is characteristic of all of these Silicon Valley types, regardless of, of like what their superficial politics might be. And I think it's based on just like the amount of growth that happened so quickly. And I think it's probably like feeling vindicated almost like Bezos is probably like, Oh, you know, people made fun of me and, or whatever. And now look at me now I'm on top of the world. I'm just like a hobbit. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, you know, this is also, just complete this is conjecture right i don't actually know that they feel this way although i would bet certainly elon feels this way i would bet yeah almost definitely uh, i mean he base i mean his decision to buy twitter was i basically confirmed just to be about this sort of thing that it's like yeah, who's laughing now yeah who's laughing now i i have through a debt leveraged buyout like bankrupted a company probably I the the uh, where the monthly interest on debt is more than the cash flow was pre buyout where all the advertisers have left. I'm so fucking epic. Yeah, he he made a really good business decision, and uh, and you know I think uh, I think things are gonna go pretty well for him. Yeah, 
Well, I mean, um, he's only under investigation by three federal agencies. It could be four, so that's nice. The deep state comes for Elon. Yeah, for real. I think this is a pretty good place to leave things. Okay, that's great. So, uh, Sam, then, as always, this has been uh, a great conversation. I did want to say uh, to the listeners, uh, we are going to be taking uh, the month of December off. Um, we'll be back at some point in, in the new year. Uh, so... To everybody, uh, this comes out a little bit after Thanksgiving, but of course, happy Thanksgiving, happy holidays, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate, and uh, happy new year as well. We will talk to you in 2023. Bye-bye. Bye. by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tallarico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tallarico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.